Okay, we are now recording. So, thank you, uh, everybody, for coming back and joining us again after uh, hopefully you all had a good lunch or a break or whatever time of day it is for you, uh, even though it was fairly brief. We are going to start our first panel here uh, on understanding and teaching museology. This is how the panel today and the two panels tomorrow will work. Uh, the panelists have their webcams on. Um, each panelist will keep their webcam on while they're speaking, um, and then we can turn off the cameras and the microphones when uh, someone else is speaking, just to preserve the bandwidth for everybody. Um, uh, the moderator, Supriyo Chanda, is going to introduce each presentation. And um, while we are presenting, or while <clears throat> the various people are presenting, I will, I'm going to close the chat box down at the bottom left corner, or bottom right corner. Uh, we will bring that back when we get to the Q&A session at the end of the presentation. Uh, the moderator will have some brief words at the end of the presentation, and then I will reopen the chat box. I will also enable microphones for people in the audience if you'd like to ask a question. Um, while you are, if you do want to ask a question over the microphone, we ask you to hit the little raise hand icon up at the top of the screen to let us know that you'd like to ask a question, and then we can call on you and try to keep it somewhat orderly. Um, I'll go over this again when we get to the Q&A session, but just to give you all kind of an advance on what we're doing here. So, I think that's all the housekeeping stuff, so let's get to it. The moderator for our first panel is Supriyo Chanda. Uh, Supriyo is an associate professor of museology at the University of Calcutta in India. He will be moderating this panel on understanding and teaching museology and theoretical museology. Supriyo, you can take it away. Thank you, Rob, and thank you, Susi, and I must uh, thank the, uh, the university uh, for hosting such a beautiful uh, session for the ICOFOM. And being a board member of ICOFOM, I also uh, express my gratitude to the university to give that platform to us. Uh, this. Uh, session this panel uh, this uh, panel there are three uh, beautiful presenter first victoria miller she is from the steelworks center for of the west pueblo colorado usa next followed by claudia alcraft uh, she is from university of Cal california santa barbara and uh, the last speaker would be yun sun Susie Chang from the Southern New Hampshire University, Manchester. I would, uh, after the very beautiful introduction by the, the keynote speakers, both of the keynote speakers, we may now carry forward with uh, the next session. I request uh, Victoria Miller. She is an MA and a curator at the Steelworks Center of the West Pueblo, Colorado, USA. She will be speaking on From Nails to Rails, a museological case study of the Steelworks Center of the West. Over to you, Victoria. Well, th thank you very much for inviting me to be part of this uh, panel session this morning. Um, 
as many of you know, museums are extraordinary places uh, where visitors experience a range of educational experiences. Uh, for some people, their first exposure to a painting, a drawing, a sculpture, uh, maybe in one of the hundreds um, of thousands of art museums around the world. Uh, for others, a trip to the museum may be the first time that a visitor sees a living history reenactment or some type of demonstration. For others, their first experience at a museum may be through participation in one of the many educational or outreach classes that many museums offer throughout the year. Uh, my presentation today will be about um, the museological theoretical methods that are used particularly at the Steelworks Center of the West where I uh, work as the curator and how the, some of those experiences provide an excellent case study for understanding and teaching museology within the environment, uh, particularly in regard to the ways in which people learn. Um, the Steelworks Center of the West is actually located in Pueblo, Colorado, in, uh, of course, the United States. Um, it is in southern Colorado. And if you'll um, bear with me for just a, a few moments, I want to give uh, just a very brief history of the uh, Colorado Fuel and Iron Company, which is the company in which our museum interprets. Um, this will provide some uh, context, I believe, for understanding museological theory um, later on in my presentation. Um, so Pueblo is located in southeastern Colorado. Um, it was originally home to many different uh, in indigenous tribes, uh, including um, the Ute, the Apache, um, the Kiowa peoples. Um, and it was served as a um, as a very important trading and agricultural center of the uh, Rocky Mountain region for many many um, many decades. In the um, 1870s, uh, the town of Pueblo started to be formally uh, created, and it served as an important uh, trading post um, as well as agricultural center. What eventually became the Colorado Fuel and Iron Company um, traces its roots to just a few years after the incorporation of Pueblo as a city. Um, as uh, many of you who are familiar with United States history know, that in the 1860s, America experienced a, um, a civil war. And following that war, the uh, American West opened up with many different opportunities to bring uh, people, supplies, um, infrastructure to the West. In order for all of those things to happen, there needed to be a railroad system developed in, uh, in the western part of the United States. Pueblo was chosen as that site to create railroad tracks for the transportation of those uh, that infrastructure. Um, Pueblo was chosen mainly because of its geographic location to resources needed to make the steel for making railroad tracks. 
And over the next 120 years, the company that was formed, the Colorado Fuel and Iron Company, eventually grew to become the largest steel maker as well as a very important mining company in the entire American West. It made hundreds of products from uh, wire, bridges, nails, uh, fence posts, many, many different products that were needed to um, uh, industrialize the western part of the United States. Um, here's a, a very early picture from our collection. Uh, the Denver and Rio Grande Railway Company was one of the major players uh, uh, in the development of the company um, industrializing the western part of the country. The company's founder uh, was a man named William Jackson Palmer. And he was originally an industrialist from Pennsylvania. And again, he saw his opportunity to uh, jump on the bandwagon, uh, per se, and, uh, and start the company out in the West where the demand was, uh, was there. Um, here's another very early picture um, of the, oops, excuse me, of the company when it um, first began uh, producing steel products in the 1880s and 1890s. In 1884, a rival to General Palmer's company uh, appeared in southern Colorado. His name was John Osgood, and he also was an industrialist from the eastern part of the country, and he served as a major rival to uh, the original company. Uh, in 1892, after some very careful um, negotiations, the two companies, Palmer's Company and Osgood's Company, merged uh, to create the, um, the Colorado Fuel and Iron Company. Uh, which eventually became the, the major steel maker um, in, in uh, the American West. And here's another picture of the very, the very early days of the, um, of the company. Over the next 121 years, um, as I mentioned, CF&I became a major player in the development of, um, of American history as well as uh, certainly the history of Colorado, the history of um, the Rocky Mountain region. And then in, uh, in the 1960s and 70s, they started experiencing a lot of financial problems, eventually leading to the company's bankruptcy in 1993. All of the assets of the company were purchased by a new steel company called Oregon Steel. And after the purchase of the steel plants here in Pueblo, they really didn't have any need or use of the records that the com their predecessor company had produced over the previous century. Uh, they were more interested in the actual production buildings. In the early 2000s, 
the Steelworks Center of the West was formed to formally preserve and interpret the records that had been produced by the Colorado Fuel and Iron Company, CF&I. Uh, the steel company is still in business today. Um, they operate today as Evraz Pueblo. Um, and the museum uh, was formed, like I said, in 2000 with our interpretive museum center opening in uh, the year 2007. We see about 5,000 or so uh, on-site visitors with uh, many more thousand visiting our, um, our history virtually through our website um, and our uh, social media outlets. Um, here are some uh, photos of our buildings. Um, within the first two years we were around, we raised a lot of money and we purchased all of the buildings from or, uh, Oregon Steel. And in 2003, the company then donated the archival contents to the museum organization for the purpose of interpretation and preservation of the West's industrial history. Um, many of you also know that people learn in a variety of different ways. Um, you know, some of us are visual learners, some of us learn uh, through audio, and then many others um, learn by doing hands-on activities. Uh, the Steelworks Center recognizes all of these different learning styles, and we cater our exhibits to each of those learning styles. Here you see a few of the interior and exterior exhibits. Um, <clears throat> our main exhibit at the um, at the museum um, is uh, called <clears throat> excuse me is is uh, uh, about Reformation uh, re, uh, re, um, and the um, employee representation plan that was uh, a new. Uh, method of labor relations developed in 1915 that paved the way for labor uh, and management relations in the United States. Um, so you see we have some three-dimensional pieces from our collection on exhibit, photographs, text. Uh, we have some um, ephemera uh, collections uh, that we have scanned and put in the exhibit. Uh, we also have some very large outdoor pieces that people can uh, see up close and personal. Um, in the lower right, you see a, um, a piece of rolling stock. This was a um, uh, mobile training classroom that the company created to go to their many mining sites around the country to uh, teach miners about safety at work and first aid techniques. Um, and visitors can actually go inside and see um, interior exhibits. Um, the small yellow uh, engine here is part of what we call the Steelworks Park, which is a, an outdoor interpretive area of very large pieces uh, that were donated by the steel mill. Um, you know, people, as I said, learn in different ways. And so one of the... Uh, things that we want to get across while we're um, interpreting this history is in industrial history, everything is big, it's heavy, and it's hot. And um, by seeing 
pieces such as this engine up close and personal, um, you can really get a sense of the size of some of these pieces of equipment that were uh, necessary in the um, industrial history of the company. Um, the uh, current exhibits that we have, um, again, caters to many different learning styles. Um, again, we do have text, we have photographs, uh, we have three-dimensional artifacts that we um, have from the collection. Um, this is a, a temporary exhibit that changes every year. This particular exhibit is called Not Just a Man's World, The Women of CF&I. Uh, when we think of industrial history, we tend to think that it's um, only men, and obviously that's not the case. Uh, women worked for the company even dating to the 1880s, um, even up through today. Um, there are women associated with the company, and so we wanted to interpret that history as well. The real crux of the Steelworks Center of the West um, is our archive collection. Um, as I mentioned, when we purchased the buildings from the steel mill, uh, it came with it um, about 6,000 cubic feet of researchable materials. Um, as you can see on this slide, that includes millions and millions of documents ranging from production records, uh, board of directors minutes, uh, financial uh, documentation, and so on. Um, has over 100,000 photographs that trace the history of uh, not just the history of the company, but also the history of photography uh, from the 1880s and 90s all the way up through the 1990s. Uh, we have maps and drawings, blueprints, uh, motion picture film, uh, three-dimensional pieces, as I mentioned earlier. Um, we also have a very small staff that, um, that helps to care for this collection. Uh, researchers use this collection um, to tell the stories of the growth of industry in the West, uh, history of technology, family history, uh, development of industrial medicine, um, and many, many other topics. Um, this archive uh, provides a, a microcosm, if you will, of, of American industry um, and the depth, the range, and the completeness of the archives uh, represent unique opportunities for researchers in numerous uh, different disciplines. Uh, when we have younger students visit the museum, uh, we, of course, utilize this archive collection. Um, and most of CF&I's records were not accessible to the public when CF&I was actually in business. Uh, now that that company has since um, gone bankrupt, uh, most of the records are open for inspection and study. Um, and so these students get the opportunity to not just learn about the, the contents of the collection, um, but uh, they also get to see the, the physical size of some of these financial ledgers, uh, which are thousands of pages. Um, they get to interpret handwriting. Um, in many cases, a lot of these uh, records are handwritten. Um, and they get to um, uh, uh, try to interpret history through um, handwriting from 100 years ago. Uh, 
Um, they get to um, smell the uh, what uh, many archivists re regard as unforgettable odor um, of aging paper. Um, they, uh, uh, you know, they, they learn about history um, not just by the contents inside the boxes, but uh, through other other senses as well. Um, if we look at some other um, areas of our um, of our collection, uh, we also have some hands-on pieces within the collection. Um, this is the uh, 1930s era nail making machine, and when young guests, um, uh, young and old, um, visit the museum, uh, they get a, a nearly full sensory experience. Um, at the exhibit station, they can smell the grease um, that is used to lubricate the machine. Um, they um, can turn the flywheel, uh, which is this item right here, to engage the machine to see all the different gears work. Um, and they, um, it, it is quite difficult to turn, um, especially if you're very young, um, but uh, it, it can be done. Um, by pushing a, a small button on this machine here, it engages a recording of the uh, sound of the nail-making machine when it was in operation in the 1930s and 40s um, and 50s, um, so that guests can, can understand the intensity of the sound when these machines were operational over at the steel mill. Um, the curved photograph behind the nail machine also provides um, a, sort of an idea of what it would be like if you worked near this nail making machine in the uh, 20s and 30s rather than just reading about it on a on a, a text panel near the machine. Uh, when guests visit this machine, of course, um, you know, museum education is not formal. Um, there are no exams, there are no quizzes. Um, they they uh, just learn about it by absorbing the sights, the sounds, the smells um, that are around them. Um, and then we do uh, different hands-on activities um, when young people visit the museum with their school. Um, crossing over different disciplines, um, such as uh, math. Uh, we talk about how many nails were manufactured um, on this particular machine in an hour, in a day, um, in a week, and so on. Uh, we talk about size of nails, um, and we do some measurement activities um, to, uh, uh, again, cross-discipline between maths and uh, history. Uh, we also um, have produced different activities uh, catering to a, a number of age groups and audiences. Uh, of course, we have uh, lectures uh, where we talk about company history. Uh, we have um, hands-on family days, as you can see here on the bottom. Uh, these were some um, family-oriented days where families could come and learn about uh, different aspects of CFNI history um, 
in a hands-on experiment phase. Um, industrial history leads itself to both history and science education. Um, so we do a number of science activities. Um, this picture here, this young man in the purple shirt, um, this was an interpretive exercise where students uh, learned about history by reading historic newspapers and then they created their own newspaper based on topics learned within the um, newspapers from, from long ago. Um, another activity that we do um, that um, especially relates to the Swiss educator Johann Pestalozzi's uh, theory of museum education is um, an activity called History Mystery. And this is a, um, an activity where students are not giving any contextual information to historic artifacts. Um, they are given a box and a piece of paper and a magnifying glass and uh, uh, are instructed to try to figure out what these, these quote unquote, these mystery items are uh, based on uh, their, uh, their senses, uh, based on what it smells like, what it looks like, how heavy it is, um, and, and so on. Uh, they then, um, you know, as Pestalozzi said, um, they should be free to pursue their own interests and draw their own conclusions. Um, they work in small groups and they uh, discuss with each other what these, um, what adults would probably understand, and certainly historians would know what they are, but uh, your average high school student probably has never seen uh, something such as a button hook or um, a curry comb or um, a, a shoe stretcher. Um, after their discussion period, then they're given some um, historical resources to research and see if they can still are able to um, uh, come up with an answer of what their mystery item might be and how it was used in a historical context. Um, and then, of course, at the very end of the uh, activity, um, then we do the final reveal. And um, you know, based on their research, they do a small presentation um, about what their historical item uh, might be. Um, so in, in conclusion, I know I'm um, probably getting close to time, and I want to have time for the other presenters. Um, uh, you know, some museums have um, the opportunity, ours certainly does, um, to pose questions um, and through a variety of different educational methods, uh, whether it be through lecture, hands-on activities, um, sensory-based activities. Um, visitors are able to come to their own conclusions and, and look and learn about the um, topic of our museum, which is the history of the Colorado Fuel and Iron Company um, and the Industrial West uh, in a variety of different ways, um, not just by looking at exhibits or looking at photographs, but through uh, a variety of media, they can um, learn about the, um, 
the history of, of, the, uh, of the company. Um, I, I think um, uh, that's all I want to say for, for right now. Um, I know I'm getting pretty close to time for the um, other presenters to have an opportunity to, to speak, but I'll be happy to welcome questions um, at the end of the uh, at the end of the panel session. Uh, thank you, Victoria. You are right, uh, not on the time, uh, so we can now. Uh, you touched uh, many points that we will. Uh, Will deal with a later later stage. Now, may I invite uh, Claudia Ancras? Ancra, uh, she is the PhD student in the University of California, Santa Barbara, and uh, she will be speaking on evolutionizing public history, the socio-political role of museums. I hope uh, our presentation would be a very interesting one. Claudia, please. Thank you so much. Could you please unmute? Pardon me. Thank you all for having me and thank you, Victoria, for your presentation. Okay, um, so before I'd like to begin, I would just like to start off with my abstract. Um, so here, here we go. African American, Asian American, and Hispanic American, Native American, and other culturally diverse and specific programs have several substantial responsibilities for the populations they represent. These institutions carry the magnified function of working against the historical mode of colonial representation and the plagued history of museums, whose explicit purpose was to other place people of color and was to other and place people of color as bizarre spectacles and oddities for white audiences. These inclusive spaces are called upon to showcase the histories, aesthetics, and contemporary critiques and artistic representations of the peoples these museums claim to represent. Culturally specific museums, simply by their cultural focus, are massively important to people of color in the United States and beyond. They fill in the gaps that most other museum and public history institutions often create. Culturally specific museums are, mechani are mechanisms for the invisibilization of the invisibilized, silenced, and underrepresented groups for teaching cultural histories and for deepening the understanding of different populations. They are a necessary cultural and epistemological corrective. Their exhibitions can enrich conversations about race in America, the legacy of coloniality that is still ever present in the US, and examine the deeply violent repression of people of color domestically and abroad in the self-proclaimed land of the free, within institutions of learning and in the broader public arena. However, culturally specific museums Pardon me. However, the positionality of culturally diverse and specific institutions require more than the, 
than the calls of multiculturalism that the larger society uses to placate people of color. Truly radical museology would call for radical exhibitions and histories, as well as showcasing international solidarity that shows the interconnectedness of these groups in the U.S. and beyond. So this is the framework in which I'm going to launch into my paper in just a moment and to really interrogate the importance of um, culturally specific museums. So the year 2020 has really been one of reckoning for America and much of the Western world. Subsequent to the institutionalized murders of Ahmaud Avery, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, and Elijah McClain, BIPOC people across the world have called for justice against the long legacies and multifaceted manifestations of anti-Blackness, pervasive racism against Indigenous peoples, antagonistic Hispanophobia, and virulent xenophobia. Furthermore, these calls for justice have looked back to the unjust legacies of colonial of the colonial project that has continued for centuries and has laid the foundation for the rest for the racial oppression and justifiable acts of violence that are perpetrated against people people of color on a daily basis. From the colonizer down movement to the international Black Lives Matter movement, the longstanding conversations advocating the critical need for racial, cultural, and epistemological balance could no longer be silenced. Academic and intellectual spaces were called to the fore for their connection to the profiteering of stolen artifacts, art, and peoples, as well as the proliferation of white supremacist ideals that were present since their inception. Many of these institutions were exposed and museums were not and are not exempt. In the midst of black protests, the mainstream's presentation on reclassification of the liberation of capitalist resources as looting garnered a huge backlash on social media platforms and spaces of public debate. The response, especially from black, indigenous, and people of color, reversed its criminalizing gaze. Instead, these groups pointed to museums in order to critique the notion of power, legitimacy, and the enduring legacies of colonial theft and profit that the museum has unfortunately come to represent. To much of the public, museums are seen as a stronghold dedicated to looting. They are physical reminders of violent and material dispossession. However, BIPOC, um, pardon me, moreover, BIPOC individuals such as Zoe Samuzzi and Amy Lone Tree have often pointed to how museums struggle to engage with their truths about their institutions and organizations. However, culturally specific museums escape much of this public scrutiny because their development is seen as separate than that of the colonial, of colonial entrenched museums, such as the British Museum. This points to their, their important role in correcting the difficult relationship between BIPOC peoples and museum institutions. Amidst the, the tragedies of 2020, the world faces economic, political destruction, the human loss that we are collectively reeling from, and the accelerated destabilization of education. Due to COVID-19, it is said that the world faces large-scale permanent closing of many public history institutions, including museums. However, there is always hope. We should use the sentiments of BIPOC peoples to push museology institutions into action and move beyond the mere retelling and replication of painful histories. 
it would be an act of restorative and epistemological justice to create museum spaces that present more critical exhibitions and learning opportunities. These spaces need to accurately address the individual needs of their proposed audiences. Museums require a more welcoming atmosphere where individuals can learn and enjoy different histories, creations of artistic value, and material cultures and collections that minimize the pain of forceful misappropriation and the legacies of colonial power. Here, culturally specific institutions can pick up the institutional failings of more mainstream museums. They can turn the ethnographic gaze of the exotic colonized other into different modes of being on display and a different mode of visibilization. Their collections can and should be situated within the, the critical context of colonialism and colonial power. Furthermore, these spaces need to present more than just aesthetically pleasing collections. Culturally specific museums have the opportunity to highlight and be more critical than much of the superficial learning that has become a staple of the American education system. Culturally specific museums would serve their audiences, their audiences more meaningfully by engaging with and displaying the needs of the full radical histories of BIPOC peoples in the U.S. Additionally, these institutions should harken back to reflect BIPOC populations' demands for justice domestically and abroad. This would bring to the fore the long histories of radicalism and communal solidarity. By doing this, more people would have a deeper understanding of the revolutionary and radical acts that we see in the present. The marches for police reform, the, the calls for deinstitutionalization of oppression and discrimination, and the calls for decolonization that are being demonstrated through the Black Lives Matter protests and the global toppling of monuments dedicated to colonizers, enslavers, and white supremacists. This paper will examine the legacy of colonial museology, present some insight into, black, into BIPOC activism and international solidarity, and will interrogate the museology of culturally specific Smithsonian museums on the National Mall and, D, and, some and some local California museums. By doing this, I hope to highlight some positive aspects of their museology and develop different ways public history institutions can engage in more critical and revolutionary museology for the benefit of the cultural groups they represent. Contemporary museums and relevant museology has had to continuously reevaluate its positionality to the overarching principle of colonial white supremacy. Culturally specific museums must also contend with that legacy. Even though they are spaces that attempt to cater to different historically marginalized groups, the institution of the museum itself is not devoid of coloniality. Colonialism is not limited to material extraction. It is dependent upon the signification of colonized people, physically, ontologically, and epistemologically. These forms of violence serve to justify the ruthless means of land dispossession, forced labor and resource extraction, the creation of racial hierarchies, and the underdevelopment of the third world which is central to the global colonial project. Just by fulfilling the role of the museum, culturally specific museums, institutions, have the potential to perform the same acts of epistemological and ontological violence. Museology, defined by Teresa M. Shiner, encompasses not only the perception and the study of the museum in theory, but the set of practices that make museums a reality as guardians of the total heritage. 
For much too long, this heritage has meant the glorification of European society and the primitivization of ontologies and epistemologies of non-white peoples. The material cultures and mechanisms of cultural heritages, both people and material items, were forcibly taken, decontextualized, and placed within an ideological framework that presented these cultures as backward, primitive, and uncultured, and in need of saving through colonization. Throughout the 18 and 1900s, the consumption of BIPOC peoples in America and across the world principally entailed World Fair exhibitions, ethnic zoos, traveling curiosity shows like that of Buffalo Bill, and of course museums. The creation of museums and museum patronage justified the acquisition, collection, and reclassification of the material cultures and heritages of, cultural pe of colonized peoples. These acts were instrumental to the larger colonial project. In this project, Europeans imposed their own interpretations of the histories, cultures, and values of colonized people, the producers of the materials they chose to steal and store. The European colonial epistemology that was foundational to archaeology, history, anthropology, and other forms of academia rewrote the heritages of people of color. Colonial knowledge gathering was centered on the theft of material culture of the colonized, repackaging it and redeploying it so that these cultures and histories were placed within seemingly legitimate institutions that would inform the public of the need of colonization. It was the museum and unfortunately the practice of museology itself that served to, as a space to legitimize and present these revisions of, as objective facts. Museums have seemingly shifted from the predatory museum structure that was their basis in the 19th and 20th centuries when museums began to formally emerge. However, museums often reprise their roles as epistemological and ontological violence that they show through their exhibitions. These displays can, at times, bolster the narrative of colonial white supremacy and the civilizing mission that is forwarded in contemporary neocolonial and neoliberal development discourse. Here, the museum subliminally can both subliminally reinforce colonial white supremacy and in, in the pre presentation of its materials to white audiences and subconsciously undermine the human ingenuity, cultural vitality, and historical brilliance of people of color via the primitivization and the promotion of a backwards people. Museums that focus on culturally specific groups, however, have had to take up the mantle of working against this longstanding ideological phenomena. Furthermore, culturally specific museums must work against the historical necropolitics of the museum. This projection of non-being on people of color has allowed exotic black and brown bodies and materials to be consumed for white desire because of their dehumanization within the settler, settler colonial project. The responsibility of culturally specific museums is compounded. In order to fully engage their audiences, there can be no ignoring of the long-standing colonial harms that the museum has emerged in, enabled, and benefited from. These museums must also advocate for the need, for the profound need of younger generations to be made visible. People of color deserve to be seen as beings rather than objects. As a result, culturally specific museums must actively work against the objectification of BIPOC peoples due to the lack of their meaningful representations in most mainstream museums, if they are presented at all. Additionally,
culturally specific institutions need to have the appropriate cultural and historical understanding of BIPOC peoples in America in order to address and redress the specific ways colonial ideologies have, been, have persisted in their misrepresentation. In the American context, these museums need to counteract the specific ways non-European Americans have been racialized. Radical racialization operates systemically, in particular in functional ways, for the benefit of the American settler project. For culturally specific museums, there is a persistent epistemological need to engage with critical, contextual, activist exhibitions that counteract this racialization. These artistic expressions and modes of historical retelling need to present how the colonial project recalibrates itself in order to ensure its survival and the benefit of particular groups. This recalibration manifests in the repackaging of colonial narratives and the maintaining of the same colonial outcomes, the maintenance of white supremacy. These colonial narratives focus on indigenous erasure or relegation to the past as a way to undermine indigenous sovereignty and rightful access to land and resources. These narratives present African-Americans as, as a group entrenched in suffering rather than highlighting their resistance to the different forms of violence that are forced upon their being. Furthermore, these colonial stories ignore how the resistance of Black people globally is tied to international calls for decolonization and universal equity. It presents the Latinx struggle as a relatively recent phenomenon rather than a centuries-long tradition, and they often write out or overlook how Asian Americans are in much of the story of American history, rather than highlighting their long-standing and integral position in the U.S. These are difficult histories to be sure, especially when they're placed within the larger context of indigenous land possession on the continental U.S. and the Pacific Islands, as well as a multitude of ways these different groups in the U.S. align themselves with the colonial project for survival, both domestically and abroad. These requirements are lofty to be sure, and it places a large amount of responsibility on culturally specific institutions. But this call to action is necessary in order to contend with the epistemological violence of the education system and the longstanding misrepresentations of people of color. Multiple studies have been conducted on how the harms caused by stereotypical representations of, of the media the invisibilization of indigenous people, the vilification of black and Latinx peoples, and the perpetual foreigner or model minority role of Asian people in the US. This stereotyping attacks the mental well-being of individuals in the groups that are being misrepresented. Furthermore, it has been concluded that having a strong positive cultural identity can provide an individual with a sense of belonging, purpose, social support, and self-worth. These positive cultural formations can protect against the negative mental health symptoms that bu and buffer the distress promoted by discrimination. That is why it's crucial that culturally specific museums have an all-encompassing historical and epistemological framework and exhibition practice, because it is not only knowledge that is at stake, but often personal and cultural integrity that is, being, uh, that is usually being undermined at almost every juncture in the Anglo-American colonial framework. In all museums, but especially those with a specific cultural focus, the question of power and representation are essential. Whose stories are told and to whom are they being directed? These spaces have a crucial role in reversing the colonial exhibitionary poetics and politics of the museum. It is an epistemological necessity to be sensitive 
to the explicit and implicit subtext of the museum and museum exhibitions. The participation of museums in the reification of colonial assumptions of white supremacy have continued well into the 20th century. However, Black, Indigenous, Latinx, Asian, and Pacific Islanders in the U.S. and abroad were not passive actors. These groups have consistently pushed back against colonial narratives and resisted the colonial projects when they could. Activism was ever-present in the 19th and 20th century and called for the international decolonization, civic, social, and economic equality at the end of the violent colonial project that included the liberation of their cultural heritages from the ideological prison of traditional museums and their exhibition and their exhibitionist institutions. So now we're going to take a quick look at BIPOC activism in the United States. In the 20th century, the ever-present activism of these groups brought much of the openly racist American society and international social structures to task. The NAACP and the Council on, Ameri on African Affairs actively participated in calls for decolonization in the, of the African continent in the late 1930s and into the late 1950s. In 1958, a band of lumpy Indians in Moxon, North Carolina, drove out the Ku Klux Klan during one of their rallies in a valiant act of anti-racist protest. The importance of solidarity was evident even before the radicalism we associate with the 1960s and 1970s. Thurgood Marshall joined a 1946 appellate case of Mendez versus Westminster, where a young Latina girl in Orange County, California, was denied the equal education and accurate representation within her academic curricula. And eight years later, he used the reasoning he presented to the court in another landmark case, Brown versus the Board of Education. The activism of the 1930s, 40s, and 50s transitioned into an overt confrontation of American white supremacist values through the power movements. Beginning with Stokely Carmichael's coining of the term black power, diverse revolutionary activism really took hold. The Black Panther Party espoused a rainbow coalition that sought to combine the grievances of indigenous, Latinx, and white struggles of social, economic, and political inequality. A new aesthetic emerged. Domestically, America saw the creation of the yellow power, red power movements alongside black power, which advocated for the same corrective measures against police brutality and equal access to economic and political resources and social injustices. The Black Panther Party, or BPP, influenced American-based organizations such as the Brown Berets, a Latinx organization, in California, the Young Lords, a Puerto Rican organization in New York, and, and internationally with groups such as the Polynesian Panthers, a Pacifica organization created in Aotearoa or New Zealand. Ideologically, these political groups were converging al alongside movements such as the Organization of Solidarity with the people of Asia, Africa, and Latin America, and Steve Biko's Black Consciousness Movement in South Africa, which called for the decolonization of educational curricula, economic resources, political access, and their overall Africanization of South Africa from the hands of the white minority. These groups highlighted international solidarity and the universal calls for decolonization that was being advocated for at this time. 
Furthermore, radical BIPOC groups sought to institutionalize the revolution and demand meaningful inclusion. Following the political and social activism of the 1960s and 70s, culturally specific museums emerged alongside the calls for education systems to fill in the longstanding inadequacies and in the invisibilization of the integral histories of people of color in the United States. 1968 saw the creation of the first Black Studies program at the University of San Francisco, with other similar programs coming online in the years after. Around the same time was the emergence of culturally specific museums. They were community-driven and the institutional equivalent of this activism. These institutions, like El Museo de Barrio, often began through a network of activists working to address the real needs in disenfranchised communities. In the late 1960s, African-Americans in Washington, D.C. started petitioning the Congress started petitioning Congress and the Smithsonian Organization for the creation of a museum dedicated to their struggles in history. The Smithsonian responded to this local pressure by authorizing the establishment of the Anacostia Museum, a community-based community museum in southeast Washington, D.C. in 1967. As time has progressed, the commonalities and counteractions against the colonial ideologies that formed the that influenced the creation of culturally specific museums and the act of solidarities of these parallel movements has transmuted into the museology of culturally specific museums. The distortion of historical legacies of the historical legacies of colonialism and anti-colonial social and political activism has increased the visibilization of BIPOC individuals who must contend with discursive representations of themselves, their ancestors, and their histories. It serves as a mechanism of radical and honest representation to visibilize the radical histories of BIPOC peoples and their generations-long fight of epistemological, ontological, economic, social, and political justice in the U.S. and beyond. I'd like to look at a few case studies. The National Museum of the American Indian. So, the dearth of intellectual engagement can be seen in multiple public history institutions. In an examination of the National Museum of the American Indian, Amy Longtree has highlighted the positive aspects of this museum. The ideological departure of censoring indigenous peoples of the Americas in the 1800s and the incorporation of indigenous community collaboration into the, into the exhibition development of the museum. NMAI itself is a beautiful work of contemporary architecture created by a team of indigenous architects. And the beauty of the exterior matches that of its interior. However, the exhibits themselves of NMAI illustrate how, quote, American Indians have been part of this nation's identity since before the country began, exhibiting the Harley-Davidson Indian Museum and displaying Indian names that are, quote, everywhere too, from state, city, and street names to the Tomahawk Missile. However, however, it does not emphasize the role of settler colonialism in that national identity. The violence of settler colonialism enabled Americans to appropriate 
the names and identities of indigenous peoples and put them onto material objects and mascots. In order to properly analyze the American national identity, there must be true reckoning. There is no display dedicated to the impacting of the U.S. Declaration of Independence, nor is there any true address of the deep colonial harms of residential schools, scorched earth policies, forced relocations, and outright murder that of the colonial playbook that other colonial governments, such as Britain, France, and Germany, took and deployed in Africa and other colonized spaces. Even though, as Lone Tree states, the director, Richard West, did not want to make this museum a dedication to the Native American community's Holocaust, quote unquote, it would, stir, it would stem as a truly radical and important space to redress the colonial harms. Lone Tree believes that, quote, our stories of survival require the retelling of the difficult and shameful episodes that make the very survival so amazing and worthy of celebration. This museum is an important step in the corrective processes and serves as an important example and calls to action for other culturally specific museums. So I would like to end my presentation there as it is almost time. And I would like to thank everyone. Thank you, Claudia. Oops. My head is really reeling uh, with a lot of information, the bombarding of information, and uh, my hands are really aching of, of taking notes. However, nevertheless, it's a very interesting presentation. Uh, may I now uh, invite Hyun Sun Susi Chang of at the Southern New Hampshire University uh, to present her paper. She is uh, the lead faculty and adjunct faculty of the Faculty of Liberal Arts and Public History of the Southern New Hampshire University. She will be presenting on framing theoretical museology in US and tribal contexts. Susi Chang, please. The International Committee for Museology, ICAFOM, first held an online symposium in 2018, which brought forth continued initiative to commit to organized discussions on museology in North America. In this symposium, we are examining the concept of theoretical museology. The agenda to understand this concept is based on the premise that there are long traditions in the field. Within the International Council of Museums, ICOM, there are 32 international committees. Many of them explore the practical work that is involved, or museography, while ICAFON contributes to the table an array of discussions that are historical, theoretical, and philosophical. The following research that is conducted to explore theoretical museology's beginnings purposely interlink excerpts to show the epistemology of the historical and philosophical writings and frames, like framing artifacts and nature facts in museums. This paper frames the argument 
that theoretical museology in the U.S. stems from na culture. And the discourse on museology, a word or not a word, teaching theoretical museology, ethics, and the functions of museums in the community should be based on this worldview. The conception of theoretical museology in North America stems from indigenous understandings of worldview on culture and nature, which aims to eliminate the divisive concept. I would like to name this worldview not culture. The tangible and intangible are a part of the discursive and practice of life for indigenous peoples living in harmony in not culture. The objects that are preserved are concurrently in use. This attitude is completely different from European foundations of museology. It is a totally different philosophical understanding of not culture and that the objects are considered living and an interaction should be made by not only elders, but by those with knowledge of the intangible. For example, indigenous names are associated with not culture such as Nihi Oiutis, the wolf on the hill, the chief of a party of that tribe on a friendly visit to the Sioux, and the portrait of also of a woman, Tissi Unatis, she who bathes her knees, recorded in George Catlin's 1913 guidebook on North American Indians. The human species are born then developing forms of communication and language that reflect the theory and practice of not culture as described below on the description of the ornaments and clothing produced and named by not culture. The Sioux tribe's The Flames Winter Count drawing shows the red feathers of the chief's headdress, which is evidence of the integration of not culture in all forms of dress cookware, hunting gear, and housing exhibited in museums in the U.S. and tribal nations. Artifacts such as the parfleche made of rawhide with natural dyes to carry goods are another example of not culture. The Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act provided groundwork in repatriation and restitution of indigenous not culture, especially human remains. Funerary objects, sacred objects, and sites are what make up the museology of indigenous peoples. The colonization of the land and peoples on the continent by the Anglo-Europeans brought museological values from their old world. This meant the exploitation of indigenous non-culture through desacralization in exhibits and destruction through harmful chemicals to preserve non-culture in museums. Many artifacts are now toxic and cannot be used in ceremonies. The craze and fascination of indigenous not culture were through the acculturation of the Anglo-Saxon museography and worldview by musealizing the indigenous objects as nature through institutionalization, which has now slowly been changing to respect indigenous museology and indigenous objects as both a cultural and natural phenomena. The Anglo-Saxon epistemological and phenomenological concepts stem from writings by the learned gentlemen and ladies who were curious and interested in museological activities to form temporary museums 
are what are known as temporary exhibits today and to discuss their findings within antiquarian, literary, philosophical, and later natural history and archaeology society journals and the formation of permanent museums. It was in 1743 that the American Philosophical Society was established before any scientific disciplines were branched in the colony. The transactions of the APS and the proceedings of the APS, first published in 1838, list the donations received for the library and the cabinet, the museum. An early publication by Hermann August Hagen, entomologist and curator of the Museum of Comparative Zoology at Harvard University, examines the philosophical fundamentals of the theory behind the practice which also shows the religious time frame of translations of texts in regard to museological practice. The most current publications on theoretical museology by ICAFON members include Key Concepts in Museology, The History of Museology Key Authors, Museological Theory, The Role of ZZ Stransky in Present-Day Museology, Zibnik Z. Stransky et la Museologie, and Latin American Museolo Museology Theory Fundamental Papers. The recognition of museology as a scientific discipline is first attributed to Zbigniew Stransky, who had established the department in the philosophical faculty of the Jan Evangelista Perkenia University in Bruno, Czechoslovakia in 1962 revolutionizing the status in the Moravian Museum. Ruland Soares marks three different stages of museology, normative, theoretical, and reflexive museology. Normative museology, which focuses on the practices and publications on museography, has been prevalent in the US. Because there has not been a discourse on the foundations of theoretical museology in North America, Skipping to reflexive museology, if that ever happened, would leave a gap. Therefore, moving from normative to theoretical museology would be the process. The basis for these discussions will come from the foundations of the ICFOM study series and the museological working papers. Museology, a word or not a word, will be examined from the perspective of not culture. Firstly, a few ICAFOM museologists in the United States, their views will be shared. So during the ICAFOM symposium in 1980, Judith Spielbauer of Oxford, Ohio, gives an initial impression of the theoretical underpinnings on the concepts of museological data by adopting a systematic approach. Spielbauer established an ICAFON panel for the American Association of Museums, AAM, conference in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania in 1988, and then created a US working group from 1991 to 1993. Other museologists include James Swagger, who concluded his thoughts on museology as philosophy and the prospects of the field on becoming a science. Going further back in time, the initial usage in a published text dates back to 1885 in comment and criticism in the journal Science. 
The text was a report that was written on North American museums by Valentin Ball, director of the Dublin Museum, to the Science and Art Department of South Kensington in the UK, reporting on museums in Canada, and especially the Metropolitan Museum of Art and the National Museum in the US, and the high regard for Professor Bard's system of interchangeable drawers and cases. In this case, museology is interpreted to relate to museography in relation to the advancement of cases. It is in the Society of Naturalists Eastern U.S. on December 29 to 30 in 1886 in Boston, the membership consisting of 130 geologists and naturalists who come to discuss museum administration. Among the members, Alpheus Hyatt, paleontologist, zoologist, curator, and founder of the journal American Naturalist, presented a talk on museology. The requisites of this membership are based on those who have conducted original work. Those words museology has not been understood to many laypersons or even scholars in the 21st century. Its usage in the US stems back to the 19th century as far as the results of this research. The most contemporary usage of the word museology was presented in representing diaspora and diverse blackness in museology, revisiting our Black Mosaic Symposium organized by the Anacostia Community Museum, a part of the Smithsonian Institution. The most representative and foremost community museum paved the way to apply the concept of museology in the theoretical and philosophical discourse on the diversity of being black in the context and study of museums. Moreover, we witnessed the significance of indigenous museology reflecting not culture through our keynote presentations and publications by indigenous authors such as Sidongi, Lone Tree, and Riker Crawford. Thus, data, science, diversity, and indigenous are a result of not culture reflected in the usage of the word museology. Teaching theoretical museology should be perceived through the lens of not culture. As introduced during the Defining the 21st Century Museum in the US Online Symposium, Alice Sadongi introduced the training program and internships that she had initiated at the Smithsonian Institution. Universities run by indigenous peoples are demonstrating the worldview of indigenous not culture. The Institute of American Indian Arts Museum established a two-year museum studies program degree in 1971. At the basis of the courses are the tribal needs and beliefs. In one of the earliest ICAFON meetings, Daniel Porter compared museum training in the US to a swallow's nest. Academia was not preparing the best training for museum work, and it is by instinct that museum workers learn, as would a baby swallow, and that both in theory and in practice, universities were not preparing or remained unevolved. However, early evidence of a museology curriculum being developed at the Oklahoma College of Liberal Arts in Chickasha was published in 1972. The art article also discusses the American Museology Conference and Indian Arts Festival of 1972 
which was considered the first in the U.S. focusing on the problematics and prospects of public awareness of Indian intangible heritage, namely contemporary opera, composition, literature, and dance, in addition to the emphasis on the uniqueness of the study and curriculum. The Museum Science Graduate Program at the Museum of Texas Tech University was founded in 1974 and is one out of two programs that have been named Museum Science and established a course specifically on theoretical museology. Museum work considered as a science stems back to the discourse on museology in ICAFOM with Stransky who headed this argument. As of today, the only master's program in the U.S. that goes by the word museology is the University of Washington's graduate program, and compatible to what ICFAM understands what that word means. So back in the 1960s, the University of Minnesota called its program museology, which was changed to museum studies. Other usage of the word museology is found in the text by Robert Wilson Schufelt an ornithologist, ethnographer, curator, and surgeon at the Army Medical Museum, whose views can be found in the book that he wrote on an extreme racist perspective that was prominent, practicing craniology during the turn of the 20th century. In relation to museology and museology as a science, Schufelt uses the Army Medical Museum now the National Museum of Health and Science, to connect collections management in 1918 and the significance of the user. In this case, a medical doctor who would come to research the collections of illustration models, moving images, archival documents, and other reference materials in the museum, laying emphasis to the purpose of the museum is for teaching. Thus, the museologist as a teacher of the museum and museology as an evolving science are indicated in this passage. As early as 1923, William Crawford, the librarian at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, compiled the bibliography of museums and museology, most of which are publications in English, French, German, and Italian by American and European authors. In the 1960s and 70s, there are developments in the curriculum and its practices in museums in reference to curatorship training and museology, discussing the role of the museum administrator as part Madison Avenue huckster, part preacher, part pickpocket, part handyman. Familiar books that incorporate some history and theory of museums in the 1970s to the 90s are Museums in Motion and Introduction to Museum Work, with two editions. Both were first published by the American Association for State and Local History. In the, in the 90s, the Museum in America focused on the innovators and pioneers in museum work, and also includes Paul Joseph Sachs, who taught courses on museum history, functions, and ethics as well as museum problems. Today, we listen to research results on what it means to teach theoretical museology in US and tribal contexts with an indigenous worldview of not culture. Shouldn't every US museum studies program 
in incorporating theoretical museology as a requisite with a diversity of worldviews, especially one that respects knock culture and publications by those indigenous authors. Theoretical museology and ethics should be practiced from the perspective of knock culture. Tracing back to history, one of the earliest learned societies established in the colony, the American Philosophical Society, first produced and published the laws and regulations of the society in 1768. This included the role of curators to give a bond to the presidents and vice presidents for the faithful performance of their duty. Therefore, theoretical museology and the ethics of the curator were measured through an advanced monetary sum as insurance. The AM Code of Ethics is a report that was established in 1925. The report lays out the relationships that the museum worker defined as a humble laborer or responsible trustee in the museum that is accountable for rendering the emotional and intellectual life of the people. The values are in relationship with the collections, other museum workers, institutions, and the public. Museum and museological activities were linked with the Museum of Texas Tech University's Master of Arts in Museum Science and Heritage Management, ICOM, and especially the Ethics Committee. The book Museum Ethics was published with the contributions of notable museologists in the international museum community such as Tomislav Sola, an ARCFOM senior advisor, incorporating diverse perspectives on ethics, museums, and museology. Though laws and regulations are not synonymous to a code of ethics, they do provide the curator's responsibilities in the certain position where they are bound to do their duties. Whereas a code of ethics is the institutional values in theory and in practice. The connection between theoretical museology and ethics is integral. The report of the Tribal Museum accounted for 16 museums out of the 39 that implemented a code of ethics statement. Their report shows that of these, they were about equally divided between using the tribal statement and having their own written statement. These results demonstrate promising circumstances in adopting indigenous worldview of not culture. Theoretical museology and the functions of museums in the community are to be linked with the community view of not culture. Like the learned societies that were created in the UK, they were the earliest forms of museums in colonial America. The learned societies were affiliated with philosophical inquiry or scientific investigations and in collecting artifacts and nature facts, or together, the culture facts, and the following subject fields that were related to the political economy. In 1962, a contemporary American Indian and Alaskan Native art collection made up of the Institute of American Indian Arts in Santa Fe, New Mexico, funded by the federal government. It does outreach to the indigenous communities and travel museums through consultations, workshops, and traveling exhibits. 
Jesse Riker Crawford traces back early indigenous initiatives of private and public museums. The museums that could be considered as a concept of tribal community leadership would be realized in the 1930s. Asian American museology can be distinctly seen within the American Studies, originally U.S.-Asian Relations Studies, now providing core courses in museum, theory, history, practice, which covers among them theories and methodologies utilized by scholars associated with the new museology. History of Western museums, contemporary issues in museums, including the representation of diverse communities and multiple points of view. Issues pertinent to Native peoples in the US, Hawaii, and the Pacific. An overview of museum governance and ethical concerns at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. The Anacostia Museum is one of the earliest museums with the active function of the community. It is the very concept of the heritage diagram by Van Mensch, of which the community is representing heritage. In this case, it is the African Americans representing their own heritage, which is also a part of the Smithsonian Institution's initiatives much earlier than the 21st century. The Hispanic American initiatives are at both the national and local programming levels with the Latino Museum Studies Program with affiliated organizations and fellowship program established in 1994. There is a need to examine the relations between the Southwest and border relations with Spanish, Mexican, US, American, and indigenous heritage and communities. One example is Taos Pueblo, the concept of the Eco Museum and World Heritage Site, the core image of the symposium's theme. It is a living, breathing institution and community that is preserved as it evolves, at the same time managed by its inhabitants. The Puerto Rican American Museum in Chicago, Illinois, though it is situated in an adaptive reuse space of the stables, the landscaping ideals by the landscape architect and the Puerto Rican community surrounding the area now demonstrate the community envisioned function of the museum. The park that it is situated in also incorporates that diversity of the Hispanic Americans. This not culture as projected in community surroundings connect theoretical museology and the functions of museums. Indeed, more understanding of how theoretical museology is applied in communities will be presented tomorrow. My conclusions on this preliminary research show that the word museology was first published in 1885 in the US but connoted to reflect museography of display cases. And if anyone knows an earlier date in the US, please do share it during the discussions of this panel. Museology curriculum with the theoretical focus began in the 1920s at Harvard University. Then it was in the early 1970s that museology addressed the significance of public awareness of Indian intangible heritage from a US Museology and Indigenous Arts Conference. An early textbook that incorporated theoretical museology was published in 1975 by Burkhaw, though he was a skeptic of Icofon museology. Ethics and theoretical museology are part and parcel of the tribal code of ethics in tribal museums. 
and theoretical museology and how it functions in the community can be studied from a curriculum viewpoint to how the museums cater to the audience, such as the Anacostia Museum and Taos Pueblo World Heritage Site. The epistemology of theoretical museology in the US and tribal beginnings of not culture are framed under the four themes of this online symposium. The objectives of this symposium are to incorporate diverse perspectives that are not only limited to the developments of ICOFON in Europe, but to understand and formulate some concepts and definitions that could contribute to the discourse on specifically theoretical museology in the US and tribal contexts. And this is my presentation, which will be followed by discussions. And I'm very thankful to everyone for listening. OK, and with um, Susie's presentation being done, we are going to move on to our question and answer phase here, which means I'm going to reopen the chat box in just a second here. so that audience members can post questions or comments in the chat box. I am also going to open up uh, micro the microphones to everybody. If you feel like asking a question over the microphone, uh, first off, everybody, please make sure the microphone your microphone is muted so that we don't get background noise. But if you do want to ask a question over the microphone, please click the raise hand button up at the very top of the screen next to the icons for uh, the speaker and, and microphone and all that. Um, you can activate your microphone and click on raise hand and we will uh, get to you. So I will ask all of the presenters in panel number one to please bring up your webcams again and please activate your microphones and I will hand it back over to Suprio to handle the uh, Q&A section. Thank you, everybody. Uh, the very interesting uh, presentation. You may wait for uh, some moments for the questions to come, come up. So in the meantime, I may briefly summarize the presentation. Uh, Victoria presented very nicely on the Pueblo history, the perspectives and economic development uh, with very interesting audio and visual interactive learning in the, in the museum. Then uh, there are different exhibits, 3D, 2D, outdoor, and uh, sensory exhibits and history mapping very nicely. Claudia's paper was full of information and she touched upon a lot of uh, topics right from the Black Lives Matters, the BIPOC, politics of display, radicalism, and a lot. Thanks Claudia for refreshing my memory in the Smithsonian. Uh, the, especially the museums you have illustrated 
and lastly susi thank you for giving a new insight on the development of museology and museum studies in the us in with, with reference to na culture which in which is a very important uh theorization and the epistemological development is there any question addressed to any of the presenters i'm not uh, able to see any anyone to raise their hands Yeah, nobody has raised their hand yet. There is someone typing in the chat box down below, though. Okay. Uh, Tessa Tucker has uh, Tessa Michelle Tucker has raised her hand. If you uh, Tessa, if you want to turn on your microphone, you're welcome to ask the question over your microphone, or you can type it into the chat box. To ask a question on the microphone, you would click on the microphone's icon up at the top of the screen. When it turns green, you should be able to speak. Yes, hello, and thank you for your presentations. Can you hear me now? Yes. Hi. Yes, and thank you. Hi, Dr. Chung. My question is, uh, when we see in our local museums that they're not in line with different people groups, I'm just wondering where the change should... Can you hear me? Yes. Okay. I'm wondering where the change should originate from. Um, should we seek out any descendants or should it come from the curator? I mean, or if the management um, thinks they're already doing enough, I'm just wondering uh, where should we start to bring about change, to try to have it show more coming from the community what they want the museum to look like if there's, um, you know, a presence of or a history, you know, showing objects that um, reflect colonialism or casting the native population in a negative light um, from a Euro-American view. What do you see as the first step um, if we're not personally the curator or the manager? Like, 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 like,
the importance is getting the voice of the community that is being represented in a particular institution and seeing how they feel and if they even had any participation in the representation. Because a lot of times, um, because I feel like a lot of times um, other folks take it upon themselves to represent a different group without true and meaningful engagement with those who are they are representing. So even though you may not be a curator or a manager, I think being in dialogue, being in discussion with the community and advocating with the community, because perhaps there are some grievances as well that they, they also would like to address. And if you open up that conversation, it could lead to a broader change, a, a, a sit down, a, a way to discuss um, these representational issues with the manager, the curator of the institution itself. Thank you. Um, I appreciate your response. And I think it really has to do with also when museums actually plan for any programs or exhibits, they have evaluation studies of who they're representing nowadays. And um, they bring about audience development studies, uh, visitor studies that also incorporate visioning. Um, usually in heritage management, there's a visioning process for certain projects, preservation projects, for example. And a heritage sites are considered museums um, according to the ICOM definition. So I think overall, when museums start planning any kind of programming, that they incorporate the voice of the community, who they're re representing, especially the specialized audience or the targeted audience, is very important. Thank you. Thank you, Padre. And thank you, uh, Susie. Is there any other question? particularly to any speaker. I think there is no uh, more question. Everyone is satisfied with the presentations. So can we uh, wind up the session if there is no question? Yes, if there are no further questions, then we can uh, bring this to a close. So let's just give it a few more seconds, see if anybody else types yeah. in anything or uh, speaks up. Otherwise, yes, we'll be done in just a second here. Thank you, all of the speakers, for their beautiful presentations. Thanks, uh, Robert. Thanks, Sushi. And mm -hmm. uh, the University, the Southern I'm sure in what city. Someone is typing something. Sorry, I think that was mm -hmm. me. I, I forgot to mute myself. No. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, thank you. I enjoyed a lot. It's uh, almost uh, midnight here in India. So thank you again. Thank you. And goodbye. Maybe, maybe we, we may see you tomorrow.
Okay, that sounds great. Thanks, Suprio. Um, thank you. Yes, get some rest. Uh, okay, well, thank you to everybody on our first panel. Uh, thank you to Suprio, Victoria, Claudia, and Susie. Um, hello again, everybody. Uh, thank you all again for coming to the first day of our little adventure here in museology. Um, Susie, Claudia, and Victoria, you can turn off your cameras now and take a well-deserved break. That was, those were some of the great presentations, and thank you for sharing your, uh, your work with us. So we've, we covered a lot of ground today. Uh, Bruno Brulon started us off with a call to arms of sort, arguing that museums and museologists should not be afraid to be fierce advocates for their communities. Museologists and museums should encourage discussions, debates, and dialogue in their communities and across borders and boundaries. We must not shy away from politics or hard questions. We must confront our community's past, present, and the future. In many places in the United States and around the world, museums are centers of community because they are the places where people come together to talk about the past and to chart the future. Jesse Riker Crawford talked to us a bit about the colonial effects of museums on Native American communities and discussed recent attempts uh, to break those colonial interpretations and to reassert indigenous-directed histories. The old colonial museums told the story of the victorious colonizers and presented a very sanitized version of indigenous history outside of the proper context. The museum curators were often incorrect in their interpretations and missed many of the political messages contained in Native American artwork and in other artifacts. As Native Americans reassert themselves in new museum programs and collections, Jesse noted, uh, they are asking themselves some difficult questions, including how does tradition fit into modern Native American identities? How is identity renegotiated and redefined? What experiences have been shared between different groups since first contact with Europeans? and what makes the Native American experience unique? These are not easy questions to answer, but will be essential in developing new museological institutions and priorities going forward. In our first panel, uh, Susie Chung invited us to think deeply about museological theory and even the naming conventions in museology. While museums have a long history, it is only within the last few decades, possibly centuries, that scholars have seriously begun to theorize about the best uses of museums and how to make museums more effectively represent the communities in which they exist. Museologists are still figuring out how to teach those skills and values to future generations. Claudia Ankra reminds us that museums have often been used to silence and to other underrepresented groups and that museums in the United States and around the world should work to educate but also to give voice to the silenced and to give visibility to the invisible. Museum programs that involve African Americans, Asian Americans, Hispanic Americans, Native Americans, and others need to showcase the fight for justice and equality from the perspective of the participants, not from the top-down perspective of the status quo that is being fought against. Museums need to embrace radicalism and solidarity while communities within communities across national borders. Sorry. Okay. While Susie and Claudia spoke of museums in general, Victoria Miller gave us a specific example of the theoretical foundations and practical applications of museology at the Steelworks Center of the West in Colorado. The Steelworks Center serves a number of purposes and audiences, including being a repository of corporate records for the Colorado Fuel and Iron Company, but also hosting programs on the broader community in 19th and 20th century uh, Pueblo. 
All of these presentations demonstrate the complexity and diversity of thought and practice in the museum community. We hope that you'll be able to join us again tomorrow at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, Eastern U.S. Time, as we hear two more keynote addresses from Vedette Coleman Robinson, who will discuss the importance of museums in community through a virtual lens, and Patricia Banks, who will discuss cultural philanthropy and diversity in the 21st century. We will host two more panel discussions tomorrow. First at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, uh, Michelle Rivette, Alice Sadongi, and Marion Burton, Burton will discuss theoretical museology and indigenous ethics. Then, after lunch, well, again, lunch for us in the Eastern U.S. time zone, uh, Luciana Menezes de Carvalho, uh, Deborah Ziska, and Minnie Kunushish will talk about the theoretical and practical impacts of museums on local communities. Finally, at 4 o'clock Eastern Time uh, tomorrow, uh, Bruno will be back to host the ICAFOM Annual Assembly. Everybody is welcome to um, attend the assembly, although only ICAFOM members will be able to vote on the various orders of business that are presented there. At the assembly, Bruno will update everybody on the activities and finances of ICAFOM over the past year and set the stage for the future. So that is all to come tomorrow. Uh, for now, thank you all for coming today. We hope you've enjoyed the program so far. Susie, do you have anything to add before we sign off? I just wanted to thank you, Rob, Bruno, Jesse, Supreo, Victoria, Claudia, and our wonderful audience. I hope that you'll return tomorrow as I'll be hosting the online symposium. So everyone is welcome again. See you tomorrow. Okay, so with that, let's call it a day, and we will see you all, hopefully, back here tomorrow um, for our next round of keynotes and panels. So thanks, everybody, for coming, and we'll see you all tomorrow. Thanks.